0: I was hoping in in my own small way to maybe uh, resurrect philosophy's original purpose, which is basically not this difficult subject, not something that gives you headaches, but something that actually makes you wiser, that makes it a little easier uh, to get through the difficult days and
1: makes the good days more enjoyable. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today I talk with best-selling author Eric Weiner, whose books blend travel with the exploration of big ideas like happiness or spirituality. Eric contributes to publications like The Washington Post and BBC Travel and NPR's Morning Edition. I've been a fan of Eric's work since his first book, The Geography of Bliss. His new book, The Socrates Express, is an intellectual journey in the footsteps of thinkers like Epicurus and Gandhi and Simone de Beauvoir to explore how philosophy can offer spiritual and practical lessons amid the confusions and contradictions of a contemporary life. Eric's work is self-deprecating and funny, even as it explores serious themes, and our conversation touches on things like travel and flatulence, and even the 1993 Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day as we explore the best ways to lead a happy and meaningful life. Along the way, we talk about things like beauty and sadness and aging, and how to embrace wonder and sustain hope in life. As usual, this podcast is brought to you by Airtrex, which creates multi-stop and round-the-world flight itineraries for vagabonding travelers. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com. But for now, here's Eric Weiner and I talking about how ancient wisdom can help us live better. We begin by talking about why Eric chose philosophy of all topics as a theme for his newest book. Let's listen in. Eric, you have written some books that combine travel with big ideas. Uh, You wrote a book about traveling around the world, looking at the idea of happiness you did other books about the idea of genius or God your new book is about philosophy why specifically philosophy what inspired you to uh, spend so much time traveling and exploring the idea of philosophy in the way you did
0: uh, because I think we need it um, I think we we there's a there's a real misunderstanding of what philosophy is is all about, you know, when I told people hey, I am working on a book on philosophy, they would get this kind of pained look on their face as if I said I was working on a book about integral calculus. And I was about to ask them a really difficult question involving numbers, you know, and and that is not how philosophy started and where what even the word means. I mean, it comes from the ancient Greek Philosophia, where philo is. Basically, lover, you know, or yes. a love of, and Sophia is wisdom. So it's someone who loves wisdom, and heck, who doesn't love wisdom, especially now. So I, I was hoping, in in my own small way, to maybe uh, resurrect philosophy's original purpose, which is basically not this difficult subject, not something that gives you headaches, but something that actually makes you wiser, that makes it a little easier. Uh, to get through the difficult days and makes the good days more enjoyable.
1: Yeah, well, you talk about how we're often introduced to philosophy in like a college class where you're learning about philosophy. You're not really learning how to philosophize. And you compare that in the book. It's like the difference between talking about wine and drinking wine. So in the drinking wine sense of the philosophy, how, how do we apply that metaphor to philosophy? How do we actually drink of philosophy instead of taking an arm's length examination of it as a discipline?
0: Good question. Um, I, I think that while it's good to uh, read philosophers, and I've certainly read a lot of them, and to read about them, ultimately you have to sit down and and be with the, the same questions they wrestled with, you know, what? not to hold them up as these experts. I think that's once you decide someone else is an expert, you stop thinking for yourself. Uh, and it's really to... Question their ideas to question like, what does it mean to lead a to, to lead a good life? What does happiness mean for me? And you don't need to be an expert to ask these questions. Uh, Socrates, the original gangster, you know, was no expert uh, on much of anything, as he famously said. The only thing he knows is that he what he doesn't know. Um, so I think doing philosophy is like again to bring it back to the wine metaphor. You know, we get so hung up on, oh, is the glass of wine, is this full-bodied and is it uh, oaky and all these other terms, right, for wine, that when you taste it, like, you've got all, everyone else's ideas in your head and you don't know whether you actually like the wine or not. So I, I think it's kind of just embarrassing yourself of, of knowledge in a way.
1: You 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 talk about how, um, like, good questions reframe the problem, Um and of course, you know, you mentioned Socrates. I mean, he was all about talking and and, um, and unpacking things. So, right. what, what does that mean that a good question reframes the problem uh, in the context of what we've just been talking about of of actually drinking the wine that is philosophy?
0: Well, a, a good example, I think, is um, success. Say, mean, you know, everybody wants to be successful. So you 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 stop and you ask, um, you know, how can I be more successful? And you sort of jump too far ahead, Socrates would say, um, as he would say, as a friend of mine actually said, what does success look like to you? What does it look like? Um, and why are you assuming that it's a good thing? Um, and we sort of jump ahead too far to say, how can I get this, um, you know, or what can I do to get more of this without stopping to question um why is it a good thing, uh, and uh, what does it look like to me, so that you end up in a, in a different place, looking at it entirely differently? Um, you know, you can. We, we spend too much time, sort of in in a way, trying to come up with solutions to the wrong problems, right? Mm. So that we're always thinking, okay, we got to we got to find a solution for this. You know, Silicon Valley is just filled with people finding. Perfect technological solutions to non-problems. You know, um, yeah, we, you know, why do we need another app that will deliver food for us at a inflated price? Um, and we're so enamored of these fancy, glitzy solutions that we don't stop and just sit with the problem for a while because we're we're very results-oriented. You know, we really we want uh, we, we take it for a given that results being results-oriented is good and philosophy, and this is kind of the ding on it too, is that it is process oriented and that can take a while. It requires slowing down.
1: Yeah. And it feels like even just to use that food delivery app metaphor as an example, I mean, you can, you can unpack that by saying, well, why do you live a life that requires that you don't have to cook and shop for your own food? And where does that food come from? And so is philosophy, I guess, there's an extent to which philosophy is not really about small questions about it's, it's about these big contextual questions. Or am I wrong on that? Does it, does it, um, explore? Mm,
0: I mean, I would say yes, but, um, but it can explore it through small means. You can ask big questions and explore them through the small. Um, because I think that the danger is if we say it's only about big questions then we get up in the clouds and we stay in the clouds. And most of us at least uh, don't live in the clouds. You know, um, we may, you know, our data may be up in the clouds, but we live our life down down here. So um, I tried hard in this book to to bring it down to earth, uh, which means taking these big ideas like what's a good life, what's happiness, what does pleasure mean and bringing it down to. Uh, taking a train trip, which I do, uh, many train trips, uh, to uh, talking to your teenage daughter and trying to connect with her, uh, to sort of, you know, everyday situations we find ourselves in. So it's, it's big contextual questions, yes, but answered in sort of this gritty, everyday way.
1: Yeah, well, I want to get into that, to the journey itself and sort of examine some of the philosophers that you used to explore these questions. Um, I'm curious to know in, you know, just so listeners know, like three months ago, I was supposed to interview you for the spring release of your book. It's now a summer book because of the pandemic. You actually became sort of a a field expert in philosophy. Um, When your book came out, is, is, is there a particular school of philosophy that has been useful for you during the time of pandemic that's shaken everything up?
0: Yeah, so the epigraph of my book is from a French philosopher. He said, sooner or later, life makes philosophers of us all. And it turns out it was sooner, you know? <laughs> I didn't didn't see that coming. Um, yeah, there were a couple that that were useful to dip into, and I were, okay? Present tense, they still are useful yeah. to dip into. Uh, the one the ones that's obvious that, that comes to mind is the Stoics, right? So the, the ancient Stoics were all about... Uh, coping with uh, the travails of life and their, their message in a nutshell is, you know, and and this is ended up on mint t-shirts everywhere is basically uh, control what you can control, accept what you can't and know the difference between the two. Um, They said it way before it ended up on t-shirts. But that's essentially stoicism is that we, we do not control events. We only control our reactions to them, but we have tremendous control over how we react. Like, um, the pandemic, um, you may react, uh, in a, in a fearful, anxious way. Um, on the one hand, that's a natural instant reaction, but the Stoics would say, you don't have to stay in that fearful place. Like at some point it becomes up to you if you're still panicky and anxious. Um, and they, they, they would acknowledge that, that very little is actually under our control. They, they like to use they, they're big in metaphors. One metaphor the Stoics have is that uh, we're all rolling down a hill. We're all cylinders rolling down a hill, and we're, we're going to roll down that hill one way or another. Um, but it's the shape of our cylinder. Are we nice round cylinders, or are we have all jagged edges? And the smooth round, you know, cylinders are going to roll down that hill easily and quickly, and that. Shape is basically our of the cylinders, our character, right? What we bring to the table. And that's what we control. Uh, The hill is there. Gravity is there. We don't control that. So the stoics, absolutely. Um, And others. Um, Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche and his idea of eternal recurrence, are you familiar with that, or were you before you read about it, hopefully, in my book? Well,
1: I wasn't, and I would love you either now or, or as we make our way through the book itself, uh, talk about the idea of re- eternal recurrence. And is that, do you bring in Groundhog Day to-, to... I do. Yeah, yeah, the, do. the movie Groundhog Day, which, which I love. The
0: movie Groundhog Day, which has become this cultural meme, and I love the movie, always have. And uh, for those who've been in a cave, basically, you know, uh, Bill Murray's character's a weatherman, He's got this terrible assignment to go to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover again the Groundhog Day event. And he hates it and he's miserable and he wants to get out of there. And he wakes up again and again each day finding himself. It's Groundhog Day again and again. Um, And it turns out that the idea parallels that of Nietzsche, the German philosopher for the 19th century, who created essentially this thought experiment. What if your life, all of your life, every aspect of it repeated itself? exactly over and over again for all of eternity. If I deliver that message to you and said, Rolf, your life, good parts, bad parts, everything repeats exactly forever. Would you say, hey, that's great. Boy, you're a great messenger. Or would you say that I was uh, a demon, as Nietzsche puts it, for delivering this news to you? And, you know, Nietzsche sort of tried to prove it. There's some physics behind it that... That, you know, there are only so many combinations and maybe that is what happens is the universe keeps repeating itself. But he ultimately never published those sort of rough notes. And I think of it as a thought experiment, a helpful thought thought experiment, because it makes you stop and think, you know, okay, well, what if this? What if the bad stuff repeats too? the good stuff is easy? But would you live through this pandemic again if you? if you if it was part and parcel of your entire life it it really makes you think about what you're paying attention to what matters to you and what doesn't
1: yeah it feels like it's almost sort of the the inversion of this sort of social media and constant panic environment that we're in these days i think you use the phrase what is worthy of eternity in the idea of eternal recurrence right um and so actually why don't you explain that a little bit because i think that that is if you if you think if, if the day I'm living today was the day I lived every day, you know, you probably would make different decisions, uh, based upon the fact that you would be doomed like Bill Murray in that movie to repeat the day again and again. Uh,
0: you might make different decisions. You might just be more accepting. I think it, it comes down to this idea of radical acceptance, I think is what Nietzsche is talking about that in a way, he was big on dancing as a metaphor that he would say that, you know, you need to, a philosophy should dance, you know, in order to be worthwhile. And I think that sort of looking at life as this radical acceptance of the bad stuff, as well as the good stuff and asking yourself, would you do it all over again, including the bad stuff? Again, the good stuff's easy. Um, a sort of variation of your turnover current is uh, the marriage test, which is if you have a friend or someone who's di- divorced and you say, well, knowing what you know about this marriage, maybe it lasted 20, 30 years, would you get married and say, I do all over again? Hmm. And on the one hand, people would maybe say, well, your first instinct would be, well, the marriage ended in divorce, so it was a, a mistake, or you would say, no, I wouldn't do it again. But A lot of people, I think most people in that situation end up saying, yes, you know, I would uh, I would do it all over again because the good and the bad are so intertwined. And overall, it's worth an encore performance. Um, Let's take it from the top and do it again. And and it's a it's a kind of radical acceptance of everything that comes along in life. Um, The good, yes, but also the bad.
1: Well, that reminds me. What is it called? Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Isn't mm-hmm. isn't there a, another movie that sort of philosophically examines, you know, if it would be worth it to relive this in in the in the process or in the the action of memory of, of actively forgetting right. an experience? Uh, Bill Murray, right. of course, it, was doomed. I think they figured out that he'd lived like ten thousand days before he got his day morally right. So.
0: Yeah, that's what, I mean, I could go, I could talk for three hours about all Day, but right. he goes through this process of, like, deni- of denial, of having a, halluc- a hallucination, to he gets angry, to he tries to game the system and make lots of money, and ultimately, again, in the movie, what punches and throw out of eternal recurrence is a kind of selflessness where he helps other people, and a kind of Buddhist living in the moment. He, he just sort of, he's like, okay, I'm in Puxatani for all of eternity, it makes no sense, right? Um, I can't get out of it. I'm going to accept it and I'm going to help people. And yeah, so it's a pretty philosophical movie, Rolf. I mean, it's listed as a romantic comedy, but I think it's actually the most philosophical movie ever made.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I I, I read your book. My dad read your book and we watched the movie together. It was really fun to see and think about in that philosophical sense, you know, what journey is he taking? Um, jumping back to the Stoics a second, one interesting analogy you bring on, you know, we have this way of thinking is, are you going to look at life as glass half empty or glass half full? But I think in the context of the Stoics, you pointed out that maybe we should be thankful for the fact that there's a glass, right?
0: Right. And appreciate it. And isn't it a great glass? And some people don't have glasses. Yeah. And, um, and, um, yeah, I mean, the, the the Stoics sort of, they really take the approach that so much is not under our control. And the pandemic really hit that home for me as it did for many people. I had, like you, I had plans. Uh, Many of these plans involved travel and interacting with people in the same room, you know, and I had all these plans. And, um, you know, There's an old Jewish joke. How do you make God laugh? You tell him about your plans. Mm. And uh, I think the Stoics would agree with that. Um, That, you know, I I mean, I I was complaining to my 15-year-old daughter, as I often do. I was all grumpy when the pandemic hit. My book was delayed. She's like, what's wrong, Dad? I'm like, the pandemic hit, and now, you know, everything's out of my control. And she just looked at me and said, was it ever under your control? Right. And I'm like, I'm like that's, that's very stoic. You know, that's basically what they're saying is it's a, the control is an illusion. All we do control are our reactions. But we, for the most part, tend to focus on controlling events, outcomes, results. And we take our reactions as a given. Of course, I'm upset. My book was delayed or I was an offender bender. And the stoics say no, that, you know, if you if I. If you stub your toe and you go, ow, that's a reflex. They would call that a a sort of pre-emotion. But then if you're dwelling on your stubbed toe for the next three days, as I do sometimes, they would say, that is on you now. Mm. (laughs) That's no longer a physical reaction. You have chosen to dwell on your toe. Um, And the circumstance of stubbing your toe is is irrelevant, really.
1: Yeah, this, this actually reminds me. Another part of your book, I forget where, it's the idea, Camus' idea that eventually of imagining Sisyphus happy, right? Sisyphus, this man who is doomed to roll his rock up the mountain every day for eternity. Actually, you talk about what's it like for him to roll that, that rock up when he's 25 versus 75, but then there's also the idea, and this feels like it ties into what we've just been talking about, how does Sisyphus find happiness in that task that he is very familiar with now?
0: Right. And I've been thinking about this a lot, and it is tied to Nietzsche's idea of eternal recurrence and Stoics and all this. It's basically, um, as I like to say, we're all Sisyphus now (laughs) during the pandemic because uh, we're experiencing repetitive days where we kind of feel like like I'm rolling a boulder up the hill every day and it's rolling back down. um, And we're sort of faded to this. And it was... Sisyphus was punished for doing something, I forget what, by the gods. Uh, But we don't know why, but this is our fate. And Camus said, okay, now can you imagine Sisyphus happy? And at first we're like, well, no, he's rolling a rock up a hill and, and then watching it roll back down again. It's pointless, it's repetitive. And Camus would say, aha, well, that's life. It's absurd, right? So Camus was actually a proponent of a school of philosophy known as absurdism hmm. which is a great <laughs> I want to go forget the school of rock I want to go to the school of absurdism uh, and and he would say you have to imagine this sisyphus happy like not just resigned but actually happy hmm. and I'll be honest I'm not 100% there but I felt like Camus I feel like Camus was onto something and he, Camus says basically he throws himself into the rock. He owns the rock. It's his rock. It's his task. It's sort of like if you've ever had a chore of like, you know, your partner makes you do the dishes. You don't want to do the dishes. It's all stacked up. And maybe you just have that moment where you're like, I'm going to really get, get into doing the dishes. And you're cleaning them and and you're enjoying it. And it's chore, right? It's a task. But you can do it in a way where you unchore it you dechore it and you turn it into something pleasurable because you're doing it for its own sake you know
1: well that actually calls to mind someone who's not in your book but Thich thick not Han is that who you say the the uh, the, yeah. the Vietnamese Buddhist monk who actually talks about washing dishes I actually like washing dishes so I've decided it's part of my spiritual pra- practice but the idea of, of just washing dishes and that's all that you're doing sure you're getting them clean but you are participating in the act of washing your dishes does that tie into this this Camus take on sisyphus
0: yes in fact i, I was about to raise the buddha actually mm-hmm. but then Khan is is the basically an incarnation of, of buddha-like qualities pretty amazing guy um but yeah there's and, and constantly actually throughout my my research into the philosophers buddhism those buddhist notions of mindfulness sort of kept coming up um, they're basically being in the moment. All we have is now. Um, that's really what Nietzsche is saying. That's what the Stoics are saying. That's what philosophy at its best uh, is saying is we have the moment. It's now. And what are you going to do with it? Uh, and that is up to you. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of overlap. And I discovered, interestingly, you know, I was – uh, researching Epicurus, actually, about four, three 400 BC is when he lived. And I start noticing these similarities with Buddhism and did some research and found out that there were Greek scholars who had traveled to Buddhist lands, India, I believed, and come back. Uh, and there was more cross-pollination between East and West, even back then, than we, than we know about, than we may think.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, um, I think... In Marco Polo itself, or William of Rubrik, they talk about running into Ukrainians and Bulgarians and Greeks in China. They just didn't write books. you know. They weren't stuck in a prison with Rusticello, um, and they didn't end up writing books about it. So I think it is interesting that, that maybe these ideas cross-pollinated more than we give them credit for. And one interesting thing you bring up, I mean, your book deals um, – each chapter sort of is about a philosopher, but it's also a big idea. One is about the idea of aging and i you you bring up the idea that americans are fixated on staying young and they sort of betray their the very human process of aging you know that in in a sense being in the moment means accepting who you are at the moment and not trying to be eternally 32 or 25 or whatever you want to be what did you find in your philosophical journey about what philosophy teaches us about embracing aging and accepting aging yeah. as a part of the human ex- experience
0: I mean, I would say the one lesson distilled from a lot of these philosophers and from Buddhism is essentially this to wish to wish that life were otherwise is a recipe for misery. <clears throat> uh, and uh, I'm as guilty as anyone of, of wishing life were otherwise, especially now, during these difficult times. Um, and that that is really the Buddha would say that would be the source of our suffering. And I think a lot of these philosophers would as well. And relating it to aging, if we deny what's happening to our body, we are wishing life were otherwise. Mm. And we are out of sync with what the Stoics would call the logos, this sort of rational, with a capital R structure that is the universe. It's sort of like the way things are. Um, people get old and people die. And the extent that we deny both of those facts will determine our happiness or unhappiness, I think. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I write about Simone de Beauvoir and aging, and she certainly uh, denied aging, rejected it, pushed it away for a long time before I think ultimately accepting it. And we don't, as I write, we don't really have a culture of aging in our uh, society and in, in the US in particular. We have a youth culture and we have a sort of anti-aging culture, which is um, older people clinging to that youth culture desperately. Uh, so to age well, we think, oh he aged well we think, oh, he's got good skin or she's you know active. Um, aging well really I think means accepting that you're aging too, um, and not pretending you're 25 when you're 75. Um, and and we think that aging well means just aging, pretending, acting like you're still 25 or 15 when you're not, and that's wishing life for otherwise.
1: You bring up uh, De Beauvoir's uh, 10 ways to <laughs> grow old. Is that her, her list, or is that your distillation of her philosophy?
0: That, that's my distillation, okay. Um, and I hope she would agree with it. Um, but I, uh yeah. I mean, if you're going to write a book, you might as well write a book and go out on a limb. And I, I tried to do that. And uh, yeah, it, it occurred to me that that's, you know, because often the, the lessons that these philosophers teach, they sort of they're they're writing in code sometimes. You know, it's almost like they don't want you to know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and she it's like you, you have to. You have to look for clues. Some are clearer than others. Um, Ironically, the ancient philosophers like the Epicureans, and Stoics, were clearer. They were writing in ancient Greek, but once it's translated into English, it's pretty clear what they're talking about. And then somewhere along the way, over the centuries, philosophy took a serious turn toward obfuscation. And in order to be taken seriously as a philosopher, you have to be extremely muddy and unclear. Uh, And that's changing back again, I hope. But I felt like a lot of my job was translating some of these philosophers into English. Um, I, I tended to be attracted to the ones who were who, who did write well and write clearly. But there's this weird badge of honor in, in the less clear you are as a philosopher, the more profound you must be. And I don't know where that came from, and I, I hate it.
1: <laughs> Well, actually, I like your your 10 ways to grow old list, so I'll just read it out loud, even though it didn't literally come from (coughs) De Beauvoir. It's based on her philosophy, but you're the one who made it into a list. It's one, own your past. Two, make friends. Three, stop caring what others think. Four, stay curious. Five, pursue projects. Six, be a poet of habit. Seven, do nothing. Eight, embrace the absurdity, which sounds a little Camuon maybe. Nine, disengage constructively. And 10, pass the torch. So. How did you come to distill things in in this particular form with her?
0: It was all there either in her writing and more often actually in her life. Um, I think it's a lot of these philosophers, they, some of them were wiser on the page and some were wiser um, in their lived experience, as they say, and I think Beauvoir ended up being she was pretty wise on the page I think she was wiser in her life and in the way she lived and um and in a way that list was borrowing probably I was getting toward the end of the book and a lot of things sort of gelled about aging um that I was borrowing from from other places that I think applied to her as well but it uh now that you read it i Haven't heard any, had anyone read that list to me. It sounds pretty good. I like that list. Um, and, um, and not one part is like, you know, get plastic surgery or, um, you know, do water aerobics, you know, it's not required.
1: Yeah, actually this is sort of an aside, but another book I read recently was Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. Are you familiar familiar with this? Huh? Yeah.
0: Is he the um Franciscan dude?
1: Yeah, yeah. He's he's out in New Mexico. Um yeah. an interesting- I've read
0: some of his stuff. He's he's a wise guy. I mean a wise person, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and he's a good person for Americans to to hear because he's basically saying we're a first half of life culture um, and we don't think enough about the second half, how to live meaningfully in the second half of life. And I look at this list that you put together for Simone de Beauvoir, and a lot of it is about moving past that aspirational post-adolescent process of becoming that everybody seems obsessed with, um, and it's more in the context of living that extended life and accepting aging, accepting um, absurdity, and even things like habit, which sometimes we think habit is, is counter to our own creativity but it just feels like there is sort of an older wisdom in the way, uh, you know, when, what Richard Rohr writes about, but also in the parts of Simone de Beauvoir's philosophy that you bring up.
0: Yeah, and we need more role models like this of people aging well as as we're discussing it here. Um, and, and that doesn't mean you're just, um, you know, accepting decrepitude or resigned. I, I think one distinction that I try to get across is, is between acceptance and resignation. And they're somewhat synonymous, but not really, I mean, resignation is not really acceptance. It, it, it's you're pretending to accept a situation, but you're not You're You're fighting it passive aggressively. Acceptance, true acceptance is something else entirely. Um, where you really are comfortable in your own skin, your own wrinkled skin. And, um, yeah, I mean, the lines start to blur between because we've already in this conversation, we've talked about the Buddha. Um, we've talked about Richard Rohr, who I believe is Franciscan. And, and um, you know, we have such hard lines between like philosophy and, and universities is one department. Religion is another. Uh, psychology is a third. But really, they're all three of those disciplines are trying to get at these same questions of, how can you be happier? How can you lead a meaningful life? What does a good life look like? And But yet we think they're so different. Well, that's philosophy. That's religion. That's psychology. Different departments, different buildings, different funding, uh, different books, um, but really it's all the same.
1: Well, I think that's one fun way that your books bring travel into this because travel is is a way that we can in life be a generalist, right? that, we, that mm. we leave our homes, we go out, and we're learning a little bit about food and a little bit about architecture and a little bit about linguistics, right? Um, right. And so how did travel underpin this philosophical journey? Uh, and how does that help integrate either literally or through a metaphor, the idea that you can sample, um, you don't have to be siloed like you are at a university, that you can sample different things and, and construct uh, your your philosophical world in a sense.
0: I mean, that's a, I, I like that a lot. That that travel makes us generalists um, because you're right. You're you're taken out of your workaday world where you're specializing in something, um, and you're often taken out of your role as um, you know spouse or parent or whatever. Um, and when you're in a place, you're just experiencing it, and you might be a food critic one second having a meal, and a and a, you know art critic another second um, you know in in a museum. Um, that that is is that's wise i think that's true and i realize maybe that's one reason i feel so compelled to travel uh, so much and so i i i always have to go somewhere right i just i can't to me an idea is not fully formed uh, unless it has a zip code attached to it really uh and so i always when i start you know i always start with the idea usually first whether it's happiness or or spirituality or genius and and then immediately i think where can i go um and this book was a little different i probably thought of the philosopher you know i thought about the idea like how do i want to look at life what are the big questions we ask and uh and then i thought well who addresses them which philosopher and then quickly i thought where can i go and i went to either where they um where they were born and lived their lives, like uh, Simone de Beauvoir in Paris, or um, you know where they, um, or, or, or Thoreau in, in Concord, Massachusetts, or where their lessons seem applicable, like Epicurus in, in uh, Napa, California, the foodie culture capital. Um, and I, I probably this book is less travely than my other books. But the travel is there. Each chapter begins with a train journey as a little uh, punctuation mark almost or a intermission between each chapter is I'm on a train and I just decided that I – I mean I like trains. I don't know how you feel about trains. Do you like trains?
1: I I do. I'm under-traveled on trains. Um, Oh, all right. We got to fix that. Right. Well, sometimes for (sighs) dirtbag reasons. Like in Europe now, you can rent a car for cheaper than you can get a train ride oftentimes, right? So uh, and in the United States uh, um uh, like Amtrak is not the fly, most efficient way. Oh absolutely. No, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, it's not efficient, but it's, it's not it's not cost-effective is what you mean too, right? It's it's actually you're paying for the privilege of traveling very slowly and conveniently at greater cost, you know. Well, give us on, on,
1: on, Give us the argument yeah. for train travel because I, I really like this and it, and it feels like uh, a lot of the textures you explore are tied into the idea or are not disconnected from the idea of train travel? You know this way of travel that used to be ext- you know, like scarily fast back when trains went 15 miles an hour, um, right? And now it's seen as sort of this old school slow way of travel. So, so uh, what's the argument for embracing uh, yeah. trains as a way of embracing life?
0: You're, you're right. First of all, it is relative. Like you know, when train travel came out in the 19th century, a lot of people are like,
1: "Whoa." This is way too fast. Let's go back to carriages.
0: This is taking the romance out of travel. So, you know, it is all relative. But for us, who are used to zipping along at 600 miles per hour in a tin can, train travel is slower. And one of my arguments, ideas in my in my book is that slower is better. Just always better. Just pretty much always better, um, you know. Uh, and And that trains force you to slow down. And if you slow down, that's when you can think. So they're also kind of interstitial in that you you spend time in between places and, and on a train, you're neither here nor there. And you've got sometimes days to do that thinking, and you're kind of cocooned in this safe space, you know, as it were. And, um, and it's not only me, there are other people who have done lots of thinking on trains. Uh, Harry Potter was born on a train. J.K. Rowling dreamed up the idea of her wizard boy on a delayed British rail train. There are philosophers who've done a lot of thinking on trains. Um, Wittgenstein, for some reason, the Austrian philosopher said, you know, all great philosophical problems can only be dealt with in train stations or something to that effect. So there's this connection between trains and thinking. And I think the slowing down part is is a lot of it. Um, it really uh, – and being sort of in this kind of suspended animation state, neither here nor there, uh, but moving moving at a human speed, um, that I just – I just like it a lot. I mean I, I will always take a train if I can.
1: Well, you also dedicate a fair amount of time in the book to an even slower way of travel, which is walking, um, embodied by Rousseau and others. So – um, if train is what, what does walking add to thinking, and how is uh, when I teach writing, sometimes I say that writing is its own way of thinking. You can prepare to write, and then writing, you know, it, it creates a different form of thinking. Does walking create its own form of philosophical thinking? How how does that slowness affect the way we process and generate ideas?
0: Right, good question. So yeah, Rousseau was a huge walker. He would walk like. 20 miles without thinking anything of it. And Henry David Thoreau, big walker, Nietzsche, big walker. um, Lots of geniuses have come up with brilliant ideas while walking. It is natural, right? We all pretty much know how to walk. Um, It requires some part of our brain to walk uh, so that we're distracted a little bit from you know, if you've ever tried to think while sitting at a desk and staring at a computer, you know how frustrating that can be, and you feel like you need to go for a walk. Well, what's going on there? You're 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 using up some bandwidth of your brain for walking, that part, and yet you're able to then think more clearly. I didn't explain that very well, but basically, it it's like it it is, you know, just like they, they've been studies that show that we. The, most, the best ambient sound level for creative thinking is not complete silence, and it's not a raucously loud place. It's about 70 decibels, which is mm-hmm. the average noise level in a coffee shop. Um, and I think there's something similar going on with walking, that your, your brain is occupied with the task of walking. You're doing that, but enough bandwidth is opened up for creative thinking, for philosophizing, Um, And also there's something just very primal and visceral about walking, you know, where you're touching the ground, you're doing something that, I mean, humans have been sitting at desks for not very long, right? And they've been sitting down to have meals raised on a farm for only 10,000 years, right? But they've been walking for a million years, you know, hundreds of thousands at least. Um, so I think there's something ancestral going on that when we walk where, you know, it's this unencumbered activity. You don't really, there aren't a lot of walking accessories. I mean, like I'm, I'm a big cyclist. I love biking and I can access, you can accessorize, you can get pumps and gloves and helmets and, you know, almost every sport and activity you can accessorize the heck out of it. But walking, you it's sort of stripped down. You get some shoes, maybe a walking stick, and, and you're good.
1: Well, I think you also point out how walking is free of social performance, and what you just said about the the historical, um, you know, tradition of walking makes me think that before there was social performance in cities, you know, there was walking. Right before there was social performance in agri- agrarian communities, there was walking. So, how does walking? Um, Put you into a new social situation. What does that mean? Um, in that it frees you of social well, performance.
0: I mean, think of how ridiculous someone looks when they're strutting. There's really nothing more absurd than the strutter, huh. you know. And and no one struts when they're alone. I don't think, as far as I know. I mean, it's a. It is a, sort of like the smile. You know, people rarely, sane people rarely smile alone. Um, smiling is a sort of social gesture and strutting is a social gesture, um, but walking is not. Walking is something that I think is a solitary act. I know they're walking clubs. You can walk with a friend, but there's this deep connection between walking and being alone. Um, and somehow if we're moving and walking that, that uh, solitude, does not become aloneness. It becomes something positive because we're walking, we're doing that. So in a way, we're not alone. We're, we're, um, you know, they said of Thoreau, a friend of Thoreau said, a lot of conversing goes on between him and the earth when he walks. Hmm. Uh, And uh, I like that because it is, you are sort of conversing with the earth when you walk and it's something you can do alone. Um, And it seems to can't be a coincidence that all these philosophers and geniuses really have been big walkers um, there, there's a definite connection there
1: yeah well it feels like walking is a way of being that might not be applicable to, to sitting at home in a certain social environment that you sort of free yourself of the expectations of certain social environments and you're just being you're in motion but you're being now you yeah.
0: You, we're, all, we're all kind of equal when we're walking. I mean, you, there was a while when competitive walking was a sport, but that's like ridiculous. It's like competitive meditation, you know? Um, there's something just non competitive and natural about walking and equalizing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there's been some interesting books written about these walking societies of the 19th century uh, where people would uh, walk all day. Um, but it, it, on the topic of being in other other ways of being with the world. You bring up in the context of Schopenhauer music. And so why did you bring in Schopenhauer and how does music figure into his worldview?
0: Oh boy. Well first of all Schopenhauer is the grumpiest of my philosophers. I mean he was a real grouch. Uh, and he was he's, he's called the philosopher of pessimism because he has a pretty dark view of humanity and our world in it and and I I don't we don't have the time to dive deep into the darkness but trust me he's a dark dude huh. um, but I know reading his by reading about his life and biographies about him he uh, first of all played the flute um, ever since he was a child every day played love Rossini played it and enjoyed it um, and his sort of uh, successor and and a bit of his uh, follower was uh, Nietzsche who said You can't really be a crump if you love music and play it every day. And then it turns out that reading Schopenhauer, I found out that he had developed this theory, again, that the world is dark, meaningless, negative, but there's a reprieve. And one of them is to be monk-like and go meditate and fast. And I'm like, okay, no, thank you. But the other is an aesthetic lifestyle. And so he thought the arts were special that when we're engaging in the arts, that uh, basically this sort of we call it the will, but it's basically it's our never ending ego that always wants more and more and more that when we're engaged in either creating art or observing art, that that ego takes a break. And he had a sort of taxonomy of art, you know, from lower to higher, but music was not even in the taxonomy because it's its own special category. He called music the universal language of the heart. And he thought that music was its own thing, that even if the world didn't exist, he said music would still exist, and that when we listen to music, we are touched in a just fundamentally different way from our, certainly our everyday life and even looking at a painting, that music is touching uh, a sort of deep essence of ourselves, uh, and that this striving will that he calls it really takes a break. And um, it, it struck me. And as someone who's, I, I like music, but I don't get music. I'm not a like music vial, I don't collect, you know, mixtapes or anything like that. Um, so it felt like he had a lesson there for me, and that's that's what I explore.
1: You talk about uh, Adagio for Strings. Who wrote that? Who's the who wrote Samuel Samuel Barber Samuel Barber. Um, yeah. So how that was that's a very specific thing to mention. And so why did right. why did you mention that? How do you interact with Adagios for Strings?
0: Well, well it's the one sort of piece of classical music I know by name, uh, and you you have probably heard it in a movie because it is the go-to uh song for uh sad sad movies it, it's it is sadness incarnate a sadness in in note form
1: Platoon. Um, I think the first time I ever heard it was in yeah, Platoon. Must,
0: yeah, must be Platoon, right. It, it is just it. And you listen to it, and it's sad and it's beautiful. And and they're not mutually exclusive. And that's what Schopenhauer's saying, and I think he's absolutely right, that we something can be beautiful not despite its sadness, but because of it. And his theory, and this gets a little out there, but stay with me, is that basically... Um, when we listen to a sad piece of music, we're not sad about something in particular. It's not like our best friend died and we're, we're sad about that. It's just sort of the the quintessence. He says of the feeling of sadness is distilled in the sad music. And we can sort of enjoy the quintessence of sadness without getting wrapped up in the story and the narrative, because we're not sad about anything in particular. We're actually enjoying the sadness and, and beauty and sadness there we see them linked in in all sorts of ways in music and in paintings and and um you know stories we we would say that's sad that's a sad beautiful story that we heard and you know the no who wants to read a book where all the characters are happy all the time right right yeah
1: you know. well I think you use the phrase it's like tasting the sadness without swallowing it you know that's right you have right
0: or being swallowed up by it mm, yeah. um, because often if it's our sadness we we're, we're so caught up in the, the narrative and we're overwhelmed by the emotion. I think that listening to a sad piece of music, we can we can taste it without swallowing it. I, I wrote it that way for a
1: reason. I, I'm going to stick with that. Yeah. Well, um, in, in your book, you t- you talk about a specific philosopher who you call sort of call your, I think, philosophical soulmate. Um, yeah. Who is that and why?
0: Michel de Montaigne. Uh, Montaigne lived in the 16th century in southern France in the Bordeaux region. Uh, he was uh, briefly a mayor of Bordeaux, but he retreated to his tower uh, in a uh, small town, Saint-Emilion, in, uh, uh, not far from Bordeaux. And he went up to his tower and he wrote. And he wrote essays. And you think, okay, that's, anyone can write an essay. Well, he the essay didn't exist before he wrote it. Uh, and uh, it sounds like you speak French, Rolf, by your pronunciation. Am I correct?
1: Uh, well, no. I, I spent a lot of time in France. I would, I would not be <laughs> accurate to say I speak French. So
0: okay, but you, you have some glancing familiarity with the French language. Yeah. Um, so do you know what the word to try is? Essay is to try in, in French. Yeah, and that's where the essay comes from. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's what Montaigne was doing up in that tower. He's like, I'm going to try to make sense of. Well the world, yes, but myself. He wanted to know himself. And I liked that. I thought, well, that's me. I'm trying. And he was imperfect and he was on the page open about his imperfections, his flatulence, his strange habits, um, his, you know, everything. He just laid it out there on the page. He got personal. And he didn't, he didn't start off that way. The early essays, his collection, I mean it's God's six many hundreds of pages, these essays. Um, and about everything, from thumbs to the meaning of life to cannibals. He has a chapter on cannibals. Mm-hmm. Um, and they start off. You can tell he's just not quite comfortable talking about himself and how he feels about things. But he grows into it. And you know, my my career trajectory was. You know, I was a, a correspondent, a foreign correspondent for NPR for many years. And uh, you know, as a journalist, as you know, you don't talk about yourself. And and about a decade ago, I started writing these books. And then I, more and more, it's it's about me and about my reactions to the world. And, and I s- realized I sort of mirrored uh, Montaigne's trajectory that way. Hmm. Plus the flatulence. We got
1: that. Flatulence is good. Actually, Benjamin Franklin wrote about flatulence, right? Um, so the, I feel that
0: there's a great book to be written about flatulence that I've yet to read. At,
1: at the very least, there's an anthology of great writers on flatulence. Uh, that's right, yeah. that's right. It would um,
0: give a woot. So we need a funny title, or um, yeah, um, yeah. I think there an anthology would be good. I, I think we might be onto something. Well,
1: this is a complete aside, Eric. But when I was a senior in high school, I was in chemistry class, and they and we could do a research project about anything. And so I decided to research flatulence. And so I went to the university library. Actually, research has been done about that. Uh, I'm sorry, listeners, I might have to edit this out. But yes, there's actually a science as well as literature of flatulence. So the
0: science of flatulence. Yeah, I feel that yeah, I'm a cultural historian. I'd want to know which cultures, you know, uh, celebrated flatulence, which cultures were you summarily executed for flatulating. <laughs> um, yeah, the geography of flatulence, I
1: think... There's your next book. There's your next book. There we go. Uh, Well, actually, that's a very human thing. And one human thing that you frame the Montaigne chapter in is death. Uh, And so what does Montaigne teach us about how to come to terms with and understand and anticipate death?
0: So, yes, uh, that is the last chapter, How to Die Like Montaigne. Um, He, you know, sort of – begins with an early essay saying to philosophize is to learn how to die um and he moves through it's a theme throughout his essays is death which he fears uh like most of us do and um then he has an incident happen um he was a big equestrian and he was writing and quite accomplished it was you know his sport that he was really quite good at and uh he was riding near his tower and some asshole on a horse you know you know what those could be like uh cuts him off you know goes thundering by him cuts him off and Montaigne ends up flying off his horse landing on his head and he's just he's he's, he's a mess i mean he's bleeding uh he's he, he's sure he's about to die he can't move uh, he remembers being carried uh, to his, back to his tower. He has basically a near-death experience, and he remembers thinking it's not so bad, and that he, he, he the, the essay, I believe, is called On Practice, hmm. the idea that, that he's practiced for death doing that. And he thought we could actually practice death by, you don't have to have an experience like that, by acknowledging it, by not fearing it so much. And at one point he says, says basically if you're worried about dying like don't uh because it's natural everybody dies and basically he says in so many words nature has your back like you think um, you know you you don't breathe or flatulate without nature does it for you right this just all happens and he says basically death is the same way and he says in so many words, "Don't worry, your pretty little head." He says it almost exactly like that. Um, nature will take care of you just fine when the time has come. But we don't trust nature, right? And we don't we don't trust our bodies, and we don't trust natural processes. Increasingly so, I think. And uh, and he, I think, reaches a, a place of pretty deep acceptance. Um, you know, when he died, you know, I think he was fifty nine years old, which was. You know, fairly old back then, but still, I think too young. Um, but he, I think, had reached a, a place of acceptance about it.
1: Well, it's there's a there's a line in your book. I'm not sure if you're quoting him or paraphrasing him. The idea that loving life is good, but loving life includes the fact that it ends. Right, that life goes. Right, right, and that you
0: can't fully love life without loving death in a in a in a weird way. Mm. That it's all part and parcel. That we. The idea that death like old age is not a mistake. And we tend in our culture to treat both old age and death as mistakes to be avoided. And and every all the messages we get, right, are try to avoid aging and dying if at all possible. And so subconsciously or maybe not so subconsciously, we go about life trying to avoid getting old and dying, which is ridiculous. Right. Um, And and Montaigne basically says it's all part of, of a piece Uh, And Nietzsche would agree. Yeah, the good stuff and the bad stuff, except it all. So um, there was just something very human about Montaigne. He wasn't a fancy philosopher. He didn't propose any theories. Um, It was just him up there trying to figure things out through writing and reading and thinking. And I thought, yeah, I, I like him.
1: Are there any philosophers who almost made the cut but didn't? I mean, I, I, I thought of Thich Nhat Han when we were talking, um, and, and you know, you, you don't, you can't write a six thousand page book. Who who almost made the cut?
0: There were. I mean, I avoided people like Immanuel Kant who were just a little too dense. Um, I had stumbled across. Um, I was trying to be geographically diffuse, um, so you know, I included. Uh, And not just out of political correctness, to be absolutely honest. But I I do think that, you know, when we talk about philosophy, oftentimes it's just used synonymously with Western philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, But the West does not have a monopoly on on wisdom. Um, So I include a chapter on Confucius, a chapter on Gandhi. I love Gandhi, who was a philosopher, definitely. Uh, I stumbled across an an Ethiopian philosopher um, from several hundred years ago. And found that quite interesting, but just really could find so little written about him that it, it seemed sparse. Um, I would have liked to have actually included that um, to get the sort of African perspective. Um, I had briefly considered Eric Hoffer, the sort of longshoreman philosopher, who was a longshoreman who became a philosopher. Um, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, uh, Kierkegaard ended up uh, killing him off. Uh, That's a good thing when you're a writer, you can actually kill off people. Um, And I actually, you know, this happens, you know, you go, sometimes you research something and it doesn't pan out. um, Or you just, you just, you know that expression, kill your darlings, right? To kill Kierkegaard, the the Danish philosopher. I went to Copenhagen uh, and I'm glad I did. And I read a lot about him. Um, I I couldn't, couldn't quite fit him in. Um, Couldn't quite come up with that how to question that I tried to make every chapter about a how-to subject. And, um, and he's there sort of in the background. Um, he famously said one of his great lines is life must life is best understood backwards, but must be lived forward. Um, he said some cool stuff like that. Uh, he was very religious in in the best possible sense. Uh, but I couldn't quite get a handle on what he was about. So, um, but if the IRS is listening, that was still a tax-deductible trip to <laughs> Copenhagen <laughs> because I was doing research. Um, I, I, I I feel a little sad about that, but um, I think he would understand.
1: Yeah, and, and it feels like a lot of these philosophers are in conversation with each other. For example, I wasn't fully aware until I read your book that Nietzsche was influenced by Thoreau and Emerson, which seems strange because as Americans, you sort of assume that you haven't your ph- philosophical tradition hasn't influenced European ones. Uh, but then right. also like Thoreau, speaking of Eastern philosophers, Thoreau brought in a lot of Hindu philosophy. Uh, and so. And then Gandhi read Thoreau.
0: <laughs> so yeah. It, it's like it, it goes in this big circle. Uh, I mean, it's amazing that, in you know, Walden Pond on in his little cabin on Walden Pond, Thoreau had a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, which, you know, was just fairly recently then translated into English. And. Uh, or you know he may have read it in French or Latin, but yeah, I mean it was this. It wasn't like today where you go to a bookstore and there's like Eastern wisdom section. It was you had to want it back then, and he wanted it.
1: Yeah, this is actually a, another way that that travel can fold in because I just think in my own life I'm, I'm interested in, for example. Eastern philosophy and Indian literature, but I never read quite as much as when I was in India. I mean, there's something about being in a place that sort of forces you to come to terms to deciphering it through various systems, and that includes uh, religious texts and philosophy texts and things like that. So
0: yeah, I mean, look, people um, often ask me when there's a travel element to my books, like, well, couldn't you have written this book without going anywhere? I'm like, yeah, you know, other than the library, of course, I, I suppose I could have. But there, as you say, there's something about how are you going to understand Thoreau without going to Concord and Walden Pond? Um, you've got to go there, you know, and to walk in the footsteps of Socrates in in Athens, you know, even though it's very different today and et cetera, et cetera. I just on some level. Um, you know, not to get too weird and metaphysical, but something's still in the stones there and you're you're absorbing it or reabsorbing it on some level, I think.
1: Well you also listen to him on audio, right? Yes. He's meant to be listened to. Um
0: because um, you know, we love books, but Socrates slash uh Plato. Well Socrates speaking through Plato didn't like books. He thought that it, this was a sort of common idea at the time in Greece is that that writing was going to ruin people's memory, mm. right? Because stories were everything was conveyed orally and like the book was kind of like Google of the day. Like you just look it up in a book. You won't have to memorize it, you know. And and they were kind of, you know, Socrates was right in that it, you know, we ever since the book came along, our memories are not as good. Um but again, like the train, sort of the idea that 15 miles an hour, one seemed crazy fast. Now it seems crazy slow. You know, now with the internet and, and TV as sort of these media that are destroying our brains, back then they thought the book was going to destroy our brains.
1: Hmm. Well, actually, as we come to the top of the hour, I was curious to know. that's an interesting parallel because we get so much information right now. And in a way, we have more information than we need, but maybe not as much wisdom as we need. Um what do you want to leave people with just as far as lessons learned from your journey, uh, that you encapsulated in the book? What, what a good framework with which to, to, to leave people with?
0: Well, let's talk about that. What what you raised. And that's was really the, I think a main impetus for me writing this book is that, you know, we have, um, you can't see me doing it because it's a podcast, but I'm holding my, um, my smartphone and, uh, it, you know, it, with this device, it contains all of human knowledge basically, right? I can Google it, I can look it up. Um, and so we have more information and probably more knowledge than ever. But do we have more wisdom? And we, we tend to conflate them and confuse them, uh, and, and without even realizing it sometimes, we just sort of think that, well, if we can put an internet connection in every schoolroom and every house, that we will have more information. Therefore, we'll have more knowledge. Therefore, we'll be wiser. Therefore, we'll lead more meaningful, happier lives. And it doesn't work that way. Um, More information can actually get in the way of true knowledge and wisdom. This is what Socrates taught, right, that we, we can have this false knowledge that we can, you know, be so inundated with information, that we don't have wisdom. You know, as a, a British musician once said, Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is fruit, a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Um, It's, it's not only applied knowledge, it's, it's a different level. And, and I think we need to return to that love of wisdom, that we need to realize that we don't need to know more stuff, we need to know
1: differently. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.